The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. All right. And we're live. Look at that fast blue go live button now that Ben's like in like a car somewhere and can't be here. Uh, <laughs> it is Wednesday, August 4th, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. We have a rare occurrence of Nate personally being on the East Coast, so I don't have to announce the show in Pacific time. Uh, and uh, we are here with Nate, uh, who is uh, has been an expert on like, let's see, like everything from democracy to election redistricting to um, to now to Facebook and social science, which is why you're here today um, to talk about kind of the recent events of the last kind of 24 hours, I think, of uh, Facebook suspending the accounts of a number of NYU data researchers um, that were looking to that were using um, a an a, an application to basically scrape data from advertisers. Um, and there has been kind of a lot, there's a lot of technical stuff going on. There's a lot of excuses flying around. So I think that we're just going to kind of unpack it at the beginning and then kind of dive into some questions. So Nate, do you kind of want to run through Laura's, I'm going to put Laura Adelson's um, tweet thread up and then um, you can, uh, and you can just kind of talk a little bit about what happened? You bet. Uh, so, let's see. Okay. Yeah. Should I jump oh, I in? I just found it. No, no, go ahead. So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Always great to be here. Uh, and yes, I, I, I'm seeing comments in the chat that I'm, I'm that, that they, people are either impressed or surprised by my casual look. Uh, that's because I'm living out of a suitcase uh, right now. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be used against me. Okay, so um, just to set the stage here, um, the the NYU Ad Observatory um, uh, or Ad Observer sort of uh, browser plugin allowed for a set of users to um, um, scrape well, allowed the platform through its partnership with users to scrape. Uh, the Facebook platform uh, for ads that uh, they were seeing, right? And so if you want to figure out um, what people may have been seeing, um, uh, you could, you know, analyze the data to see, um, uh, you know, what types of people were receiving what. And, and then, you know, Facebook has made a lot of information available uh, through its um, ad library. And um, the basic question uh, that that was sort of in the background here was whether the browser plugin um, allowed the uh, either the NY, the NYU researchers or, or uh, people who are using the data to have access to personal information from non-consenting users on the platform akin to Cambridge Analytica. Right? So I mean, it's personally it's a, identifying information. So it's not just like personal, but it's like things so that can track you to your question. desk. So there's a dispute really about that. But the right. allegation from Facebook is that this scraping would have a lot because among other things, it would have it would have harvested 
the um, feature that you see, if you go into an ad on Facebook, you can click, why am I seeing this ad, right? That that then explains certain things about why you're seeing this ad, like this advertiser was targeting these types of people, right? And so if you have enough of that information, the allegation is you can then discover things about the user population that Facebook thinks uh, would be in violation of its FTC consent decree um, that you know it settled for $5 billion after Cambridge Analytica. Um, so, but there is a dispute, let's be clear, about between um, the NYU folks and Facebook and, and Mozilla taking the uh, side of NYU folks on um, really what kind of information was gatherable as a result of this plugin. Um, Facebook has, you know, set, it, 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 this is not just something that happened today, right? There's been a year long controversy about this extending through the election where Facebook was trying to um, uh, uh, figure if there was a way to integrate the NYU group into other uh, research portals. But the NYU group, as I understand it, felt that their browser plugin, what, what, what was important was that, the, that some of this information was not stuff that Facebook was making available through these other research portals. And it was really important because, you know, speaking as someone who does study political advertising, right, the, the, the key question is, you know, who received what, when, and why, right? And so, and which users received which communication from which spender and why did they receive it? Right now, the, each of the answers to those questions could reveal PII, right? P uh, personally identified information, because if you know the types of users who either were targeted by an ad or were exposed to an ad, right? Then you might know, and if you know, for example, one of the targets was, uh, I mean, take it out of the politics for a second. If you're, if you're marketing a cancer drug or something and you somehow know that the you wanna find out, you wanna uh, uh, select people who've been searching about cancer or people who, who've had cancer before, Right. And then we know the types of people who received that advertisement. Then we know that maybe these are people who've had cancer. Right. That's an example of, of the, the way you know, targeting could be used. Um, not to say that Facebook allows for targeting with based on cancer. But the point is that you pick your personal characteristic and we know that you can do some pretty personalized advertising on, on Facebook. The more you know about the people who receive the ads, right, the more likely that you might might learn some PII. Now, that is not as big a problem if it's just if the users have consented into the scraping right if it's just the user folks and this is part of the argument the people who who um signed up and put on the browser plugin facebook alleges that they also were able to get some other information about the fr their friends mozilla says no that's not true and they've looked at the code um and so there there is a dispute there um and so that that's sort of like the the big or, or maybe the, the kind of tempest in this particular teapot <laughs> the 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 issue of you know data access is of course one that i've been working on for four years with facebook and other companies um and so you know th this is just a lens through which you can view the continuing struggle that researchers are having with the tech platforms in trying to figure a way through to get access to data um, that will answer the most important questions about whether the platforms are destroying democracy or, or causing other kinds of harms. Um, 
I have I have personally come to the conclusion that we need federal legislation in this area to force the platforms to develop research protocols for approved university researchers. That is a very difficult thing to pull off, but I think it's a necessary thing. There's also um, uh, efforts in Europe to do the same uh, same kind of thing. So. So that's sort of where we are, um, and there is a bit of a standoff. And, and one thing, just to give you a lens into Facebook and, and other tech platforms, which is that you know, Facebook had to pay five billion dollars in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, which was a you know a a, a a researcher acting in his individual capacity who then um, basically used some of the the research uh, to you know help political you know, the Trump campaign and others um, to develop these kind of psychographic profiling um, techniques. You know for, that were used for politics. Um, the question, right, is how can we develop a system where researchers like those at NYU who are, are totally, you know, doing this in the public interest, trying to figure out what's happening on the platform, will have uh, guaranteed access without having the risks of Cambridge Analytica or something even worse, right? And um, you could, you know, it's Facebook will say that look, you cannot just say that we should trust the researchers right to do the right thing we need to have rules in place as to what um when scraping is allowed and, and how the platform could be used um the researchers are saying look you know this is nyu after all and they've submitted their code publicly and an outside group like mozilla has 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 verified it and so whatever you might want to you know you might fear about cambridge analytica the nyu ad observer is not that okay and so there that, that's where we are uh, i mean there's a lot more that i could say about this as you mentioned social science one which was the effort that i and gary king um started we learned an enormous amount through that and that and there is a lot of research that has come out of that um and and some important research will come out in the next few months on this that was an effort to have some people namely gary and myself broker relationships with an outside set of researchers that facebook would have no control over that facebook would not be able in a position to approve them um, but that we would have wide, you know, ability of these researchers to get access to some Facebook data. The problem is the data that Facebook made available was not the individual level data that we're all interested in. And the reason they didn't make it available was because of privacy concerns. But but this aggregated data on, on uh, URLs that also had differential privacy thrown onto it, again, something more complicated than needs to get here. But the point is the stuff that we want to see, which is like who saw what, when and why, right? Um, is, is, the, is in some ways the thing that they are most reluctant from a privacy standpoint to, uh, to give up or to, to allow for research to get access. And when you have lawyers inside the firms who are staring down potential multi-billion dollar fines for privacy violations. And you've got public interested researchers who are saying, hey, we're just as important. The lawyers and the privacy folks are always gonna win. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I just tweeted before coming on here, why it's absolutely critical that the privacy organizations also condemn what the, the actions that Facebook took today. Uh, so to make clear that they, that they want people like the NYU Ad Observatory scraping the, the website in order to get this kind of information. Uh, and it's also important that the FTC declare that there's nothing in the consent decree that will prevent uh, this type of scraping for academic purposes. So I think, so that was like absolutely amazing. I'm going to TLDR it, TLDL it. <laughs> Not, uh, 
not for just to kind of so we can like move it forward. I want to make sure that I got everything correctly. So you're kind of talk. So like the main, they have this plug. NYU has the Ad Observer plugin that Laura and her team have had for a while. They have been scraping information based on that. There are issues with scraping that there's like the like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and other types of things that disallow certain types of information. And there's privacy restrictions based on Facebook itself. If it knows that someone is using some type of scraping technology that it has to kind of to step in and do this. If it is scraping information that could be personally identifiable to the user, the problem is we don't know if this is personally identifiable to the user. Some of it may be, some of it might be. Facebook might say, well, we can give you all of this information, but without the personally identifiable information. But part of what NYU is concerned about is like, well, we don't want you to sanitize some version of information. We don't necessarily, we want to get, go out and get this information for ourselves. We don't want, we don't even, the whole point is we don't trust you, Facebook. So like, you know, we want to go and kind of collect this information on our own. Uh, and when we have worked with you in the past, it hasn't been the full version of all the information we want anyways. And so here's kind of, here's like that, there's this other information. There's this other reason why I want to kind of be, to keep running this plugin, even though it might cause me problems and like get our accounts banned. And then Facebook, as we've said so many times, we said right before in the green room before the show was like, there is, it is a they, not an it. And there's different parts of it all the time. And so like right now, people who are very loath to take on more giant fines from the FTC, like policy or like or any type of lawyers are going to look at this and be like, there is no difference from a legal perspective between a third party that's an academic researcher and a third party that's Cambridge Analytica. We're between a rock and a hard place, screwed each way. We're just going to take away everybody's toys and no one gets to play. And like that's kind of to a certain extent a little bit where we are now. It gives a little bit more of an understanding, I think, and a sophistication to what's going on when we look for solutions that is way above, I think, what the di dialogue has been is this has been kind of retread throughout the day. But at this end of the day, there's still, we're still, I love your takeaway of like, yes, maybe the privacy researchers or the privacy organizations that have been push, pushing for this need to recognize that if they are going to push for these privacy, like they, these privacy restrictions, that they have to be nuanced about it because they, if they want for there to be more kind of transparency on this one hand for academic researchers that are concerned about transparency writ large for transparent, for like privacy sake, that there just can't be these, you can't have both. And so like well, this but, might but, be a moment but, but, where they differentiate. I don't want to say that I ha I know where the balance should be struck in a kind of existential way. I have my personal preferences on this, right? Uh, and look, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm a law professor, you know, I'm a, I'm a social scientist also, right? So no surprise that I'm sort of erring on the side of research. There there are those, right? If you believe that the the biggest dangers that these platforms pose has to do with leaking a private information, then maybe you take a kind of extreme position here and you say, I don't care whether it's a university research, I don't care whether it's going to help us understand disinformation, the leaking of personal uh, information is sufficiently dangerous that we have to have a, a solid um, barrier there. But you have to recognize the trade-offs, right? And be, you know, admit you cannot have everything, right? And 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 this is true with politicians, right, who are, who, who are slapping the platforms 
both for privacy violations and for having a lot of disinformation and for lack of transparency, which is that you have to create some kind of balance between, between these two. And, you know, as, as you know, in, in uh, the book Josh Tucker and I edited on social media and democracy, we have a long sort of diatribe in there saying, look, you know, as with every other kind of right, you have, you're going to have to balance this against the social costs that, that potentially are, um, that we're incurring here. And we are reaching a critical moment Right, where we, we think, I mean, you know, the President of the United States is basically saying, has said that Facebook is killing people, right? That is something that needs to be investigated, right? It can only be investigated with the data that the platform itself has. The platform says that allegation is false. No one will trust Facebook, you know, when they say that. You have to have some process through which outside researchers can validate who is right and who is wrong in this, right? And so that will require getting access comparable to what the employees of the platform have. And, 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 and you know, my response often with the, the privacy folks is to say, look, it's not as if people are not analyzing this information, right? The per it's just the people who are employed by the firm who are doing it, right? And so someone is looking at this, right? It, it, the, the, and, and so then the question is, can we develop a scheme in which outside researchers you know, a system in which you will, you know, prevent the kind of privacy leakage akin to Cambridge Analytica or other things um, while preserving the, the research benefits. And, you know, and, and so the, I'm working on a piece of legislation that would do three or four things. The first is compel large platforms, principally Facebook and Google, to develop research, research protocols, sort of safe research environments where they can share data, privacy protected data uh, with researchers. The second part of that is if they or another firm does this, that they will be immune from privacy suits, either from the government or from individuals, right? And the third is immunity for researchers who want to scrape uh, publicly available websites. That would, in this case, that wouldn't prevent a, a platform from shutting off their access, but they should be immune from criminal liability or from civil liability if they, if they did this for academic purposes. And there's one fourth thing which I think has occurred to me today, which is that any data that a platform makes available to a commercial client has to be available to outside researchers uh, for independent analysis, because then there's no privacy. You can never make a privacy argument. If you're willing to sell the data uh, to someone else, then um, you know you, an outside researcher ought to be able to research it. One of the things that I do struggle with is because, the, as you say, the commercial interests and objections are so tied into the privacy objections and utilization of that. How do we disaggregate that? Because, as I understood it, the um, anonymized data was, or the data scraping, de-anonymized the, the advertiser themselves. And so part of the policy th issues at large here, as I understand it, is understanding who is buying those ads to target those users. Mm -hmm. And so it, particularly in the area of elections, where does the balance weigh? Well, so so you're right, and I, I sort of left this out, which is that there's the, right, there, there are several actors here. You've got the researchers, you've got the, um, you've got Facebook, you've got the advertisers, and you've got the users, right? And you've got two sets of users, users who've opted in and then some other users who might have their PII revealed. Again, that's a point of dispute uh, between the various groups here. Um, and so, look, my view is that advertisers have no right of privacy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you for for the information that they are providing through by way of the contract with Facebook. Right. I mean, if you're paying 
in order to affect public opinion, whether it's for to buy widgets or whether it's to buy votes. <laughs> you know, you, 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 all that information has to be public and transparent. One thing, and I guess I didn't, I didn't really hit this home enough. You know, there is a, there is a myth, or I, I should say, when you, when you talk to privacy advocates and you say, well, hey, this data is public, right? They say, well, you know, it's not really so clear that something that is public necessarily doesn't pose a privacy violation. Let me give you an example, right? So and I was sort of saying before, if you know, if you know why an ad was targeted, right? And then you know the types of people who were, who received the ad, even if that stuff, is, each of that individual stuff is, is public, then you might be able to know some characteristic about the people, right? And, and that's a problem. Um, I mean, that's 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 a, a challenge, right? That we you have to wrestle with because all of us want to know, you know, is a political campaign targeting minority voters for demobilizing messages is a classic kind of question, right? Really important question. Um, and and are they, you know, targeting people of a particular age group or something? Now, you know, there are a lot of people on Facebook who do not reveal their age publicly. Right. And so if you start knowing this about who received those ads, you might know uh, some PII about those people, about their age. And and, you know, again, it's part of the thing that, that, that goes into the balance. I don't. The, the, and, and then about the advertisers, you know, the, the transparency practices that were put into place after the 2016 election, where they have these postcards and you have to be verified as a political advertiser and like at least we're trying to lurch in the direction of identifying actual human beings who are behind the ads as opposed to right the committee for an american america or something like that right and so that that is um they they, they at least they, they, it's not perfect and part of what is useful about something like the nyu ad observatory is to find problems and same thing with ProPublica and the, the markup right all these different outside efforts to say haha you missed this right that, that, that's really important, but um, uh, ultimately, I think they've gone. All the platforms have gone in a in a good direction when it comes to verifying the identity of political advertisers. Uh, but we still don't know enough about what's really happening on the platform. Who's again? Who is seeing what? How much money is being spent by whom to target whom um, uh, to to communicate what messages, and then what effects it might have? So, I have a couple of questions. One. There was just recently a study, I think it was also out of NYU, I'm trying desperately to Google it, but I can't find it. But it basically said that, in fact, that the, that the Facebook ban on political ads for the 2020 election had no effect slash maybe hurt down ticket and like small candidates who couldn't take out cheap ads and hit their constituencies yeah. and target their constituencies, which I know you and I talked about a ton, when like all this was happening, we're like, well, like the political ads are not the problem. So like, this is like, there's also just like a whole segment of this in which like, I feel as if there is a lot of like easy finger pointing happening that is like, oh, a political ad that must have so much effect. And it doesn't, it, it has small, I think it has small market effect, but it doesn't, ha for a lot of these national campaigns, doesn't have a huge market effect. So I, I wouldn't say political ads are not the problem. They are a, a category of problem, right? It depends which problem we're talking about here. It's if we're talking about disinformation, if we're talking about polarization, if we're talking about privacy, right? So, the, you know, the, the, the purchasing of influence um, is a problem depending on what you think about the influence that, that end, ends up occurring. Now, 
Then there's the empirical question, which you're kind of putting on the table, which is to what extent do internet ads work, right? And by work, we mean either that they persuade voters to vote for a candidate or against the candidate, or that they turn people out or demobilize them, right? And so, you know, we know that in 2016 that there were, uh, and this was kind of wrapped up in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, that there were black voters in the Midwest who were targeted with demobilizing ads uh, about Hillary Clinton, as an example. How big an effect that had, we have no idea, right? It was a close election, so who knows? Um, in, a, in general, in a presidential election, Right, there's a question as to whether any advertising works. And that, that's true with television ads also. But you know, yes, certainly yeah. the candidates and campaigns think it does because they're spending tens of billions of dollars or, or several billion dollars on this, right? I mean, but so do Coke and Pepsi. Right. Yes. Well, but so the but but good point. Um but, <laughs> Sorry. But, but it's it's a little bit different. So so part of the question is, you know in a high information race, like a, pre a presidential race, where everyone pretty much knows the candidates and the amount of information that is sort of coming over the transom from so many different avenues, right? From from social media, from, from legacy media, right? It's, it's so huge. How much does a 30 second ad on TV or you know a, a well-targeted Facebook ad, how much does it really make a difference? And so, so that question about so the answer is minimal effects, right? To anyone who studied this in the presidential race. However, if you are someone who is not known, right? If you're a local candidate, right, who has never run for office before, no one has heard of your name, right? You would think that the advertising effects would be bigger because you know if you have no and you have no media coverage, right? So you're not Donald Trump or you know um, uh, a celebrity, and you're not an incumbent. Well, if you're not known, this is a way to get your name out there. And so that's why a lot of political scientists have often thought that campaign spending has kind of diminishing marginal returns, that you know the first million is very important, but the difference between 100 million and 101 million is not so important. So, um, and, so and so just one last thing on this, which is that that study that you mentioned said that the Facebook ad ban, it was not really a ban, but basically what Facebook did in this last election said that in the week before the, 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 before the election, no new ads could be uh, broadcast by political groups, no new political ads. So if you had had an ad that had been running before, you could continue to run it in the last yes, week, yes. Um, but you couldn't do a new ad. And why was that? Well, the idea was that then, because it would not be amenable to counter speech. So if you wanted to lie through an ad 48 hours before the election, that there wouldn't be no way to counter that. And so the the, the, the study that you mentioned um, found that this hurt, that the ad ban hurt Democrats disproportionately, okay? Yep, yep. Um, and, you know, challengers, you would think, but again, it's, it's because of how much information may have been out there about them versus the opponents and, and the like. Go ahead, Genevieve. Um, so I, I wanted to talk for a second about the, um, the legislation you said you were working on, yeah. um, and about categorizing these third-party recipients of data. Um, and it strikes me, and maybe this is what you're drawing from, but if you're not, I'd be interested, but if you are, like, I would love to explain, love for you to explain more. But I was thinking about the FEC kind of PAC, like, and campaign financing kind um, categories, right? Um, and that maybe that is the model is that the model that you're kind of thinking of and if so i think it's kind of clever but it does require there to be a new agency or group 
that would be in charge of administrating who is in and who is out of these various types of things. And to be fair, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know how, like companies would end up instrumentalizing that. And I don't know, kind of in the same way that you saw the, not to go too into the weeds, but like the European Union, the the European Union, um, like Court of Justice, tell you know, say to to Google, like, listen, we can't possibly field all of these requests to for right to be forgotten. Why don't you field all of these requests for right to be forgotten? And then we'll tell you if we really disagree with you on any of them. And like, which model do you think is going to happen here? A new agency or like the right to be forgotten type model? So the FTC, so in my in my proposal, but I'm open to suggestions, the FTC, since it is the one that is most likely to be, um, you know, dealing with issues of transparency, fraud and privacy, right, would be the one that would um, be in charge of this. Uh, and the, the, the basically here, here's how it would work, which is that you have a legal mandate for the large Internet platforms to develop research environments right for outside researchers at the firms themselves now this is important i you know i debated whether should it be in some government facility then there's a problem of potential government surveillance should it be at universities maybe then there's a potential of uh, leakage there so the, the firms themselves have to have these protected environments akin to what we have for census data or health data or defense contractor data right there are, are models for this then and 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 Researchers who go into these facilities will be will be videotaped the entire time they are there. They will have every keystroke that they enter in a computer will be recorded, and they will not be able to leave with any of the data. Okay, but um, and, and the researchers will be vetted by a third party. Now that now the the way the, in the, there are two third parties. One is there's IRB approval that has to happen through the university, and they have to be university researchers. Something which I'll talk about in a second. I was going to say, so that would be taking anyone who's not affiliated with the university out of the running yeah. for doing journalists, this. journalists and think tank folks. If you're on this call, I love you, but this is not for you. You know, no, <laughs> and, and this is this is important because I know how to define what a university is, what a university researcher is, right, or a professor. I don't know how to define what a journalist is or a think tank, right? So, so that if you go beyond that defined category of people, right, then it's not clear. You know, how do you distinguish Breitbart from from the New York Times, how do you distinguish, pick your think tank from- Well, any type of random freelancer. I mean, like yeah, whatever, yeah. yes. And, that, and, and again, it's not, the, I, I have my ways, and we dealt with this with Social Science One, where certain reputable think tanks wanted to be part of this, and we said, join with the university researcher. Okay, and part of the reason to do this is so that the universities are on the hook as well to police against researcher malfeasance, right? And so one well, of the and things- And you run off their IRB. Yes, process. right, exactly. And, and and part of the point here is that the the universities, um, so the, one thing I'm actually proud of from our experience with Social Science One is that we developed a research data agreement after six months of negotiation with various universities and Facebook that now is available on the Social Science One website that you can see, which is a model for how researchers will be nested in a larger environment with their universities. So if there is malfeasance, the universities have to police it as well. Uh, and in addition to everything I just said, there will be criminal liability for the researchers if they leak PII, okay, knowingly. Um, and so, but 
if you have that research environment with all the security measures that I mentioned, as well as the, the, the vetting of the researchers, and the, we talk about who could vet the researchers, that could be the National Science Foundation, that could be National Academy of Science, we have ways of you know, doing that. Um, it would not be the firms themselves, right? It's not like it's only Facebook approved researchers or something like that. It'd be, it'd be an outside group. And that was actually the vision of Social Science One, but let's get a, like the National Science Foundation, which is in this business anyway. And, uh, but if they go through all of those hoops, they cannot be sued either by you know uh, the federal government or by users for privacy violations, right? So there's immunity for platforms that that um, provide data for researchers like this, right? There also has to be vetting of the research before it's made public, of course, to make sure there's no um, leakage of privacy. So are you at all concerned though about volume of researchers going into these companies? Because each company has a different model, they have different goals, and each research team has different goals and what they're trying to assessing. So how would we prioritize the issues? Or would there be anything in the legislation that would point to issues of policy priority? Yeah. That's a that's a good question, right? Because everyone wants to study, you know, people want to study whether Facebook is causing depression and people want to see whether Facebook is destroying democracy, right? There's mm -hmm. a lot there. <laughs> um, and, but this is exactly the kind of thing that- Well, you can do both. Why not both? Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, you, everyone and their mother's going to want to have uh, some access here. But this is the kind of thing that the National Science Foundation deals with all the time, you know, and, and uh, as well as the IRS, the Census Bureau, right? They do have research protocols, right? And not everybody uh, gets access. But mm -hmm. it, the key is that it, it not be the um, not be a partisan institution that doesn't yes. not be uh, the platforms themselves, right? They can't control which researchers uh, get access. Yeah, I I think that the problem I have with your solution, which is not a very significant problem, mostly I think this is great and I agree with a lot of what you're saying, as usual. Um, but uh, I, I think it's like a constant third party, third party, third party type of thing. And maybe that's just the reality of the new world that we live in is that there's always gonna be these like third party people like occupying the gray space between public and private. And I I think I think that that's I mean, the other thing that I think, quite frankly, well, yeah, but I want to make sure I understand that point. I mean, the the the, the we, we agree that the firm can't be in charge of, you know, blessing researchers, then we've got a conflict of interest. We you know, there is a problem they can't let and, and then they can't let everyone in. And so we need to figure out some way of filtering. And so, you know, it would be you know, we can't have the White House do it, right? Because that would be a problem, you know? Um, and so it's gotta be some kind of- But what about um, Prager University, Nate? What about, the, no. Like, I mean, so I'm that not, would be, would that I, I be allowed? If they, if they have a, yeah, Prager University is, you know, that's the kind of Breitbart problem I was talking about before. Right. If, if you've got a, a, you've got a university researcher that goes through the um, IRB, and then, you know, it has a valid, you know, research protocol, right? I mean, I don't know enough. Like Prager's an online university though, right? It's not like a real one. Well, right, but I guess my point is like, you're gonna also draw a line within the universities and they're going to have to, that line is going to have to be like accreditation. And then how do you do that globally? Like, what do you do with different types of universities that have different right, accreditation Right now, systems? this is just for the US, right? We, okay, I can't, so this I can is only US. solve okay. so many problems, right? And partly because- God, Nate! <laughs> no, I mean, because Europe, well, Europe is trying to do the same thing. Now, Europe, the approach that, as I understand it, that they will be taking will be more, um, you know, bureaucratic, 
as is often the case, that there'll be more top-down rules, but that's also because they have kind of trusted independent civil institutions that would, um, like the European, um, is it the European Research Foundation, European Research Council, that could really uh, supervise all of this, right? So it's not crazy that you might have a kind of research playground that would be in Brussels where uh, some of the data would be housed, right? Now, the, 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 but the, to going back to Genevieve's point, right, which is that, you know, th there is a legitimate question about how big, how many, it, is this everything, right? Is, is this, this all inquiries? Um, and th that is a legitimate question. And we could start with democracy. That was what we did with Social Science One, but then you can expand it out to public health, uh, you know, COVID, whatever. Um, but you know, it, we, we got to find a way through here. Otherwise, we're going to keep chasing our tail as 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 uh, we've been doing the last few years. No, I think that that's completely. I think that that's completely right. I think that you'll have some weird, not not um, maybe not maybe not significant. But, but that's like, not I think but that, weird. But look at the, look who gets NSF grants now. It's not Prager University folks, right? There there are ways no. of weeding out, you know, uh, this kind of. No, I'm stuff. with you. Well, I think that one, you'll have people trying, like, you'll have a huge uptick in people maybe trying to nefariously, well, like get like get some type of affiliations to universities. Um, uh, but I think that you're right that you you have some type of punishment and like kind of like a, a place yeah. in a like in, in right. stuff there's that you I mean, keystrokes. There's limited, there's limited nefarious ability that would be even possible with the data. So like, I think that that's actually kind of quite. I like the physicality of kind of the situation that you're talking about because I think that is the type of friction that's like kind of called for. I mean, it's you'd basically create some type of like library in which people have to go into the library and they have to sign in and they have to get checked and go through a metal detector. I mean, it's like the Library of Congress and like they can look at everything, but they can't leave with it. And like, you know, like it's a, I think it's actually a very like kind of elegant solution. So Facebook has developed something like this. This is what was, they spent several million dollars uh, on, I mean, just nothing, you know, it's in the, that's in the Facebook cushions, but, but they, they um, you know, but it was you know, probably tens of millions of dollars uh, developed in the Facebook open research tool, which is otherwise known as Fort, which is mentioned in their, in their uh, blog post today. And that is a model for how this can be. It's a research environment, right, that now People through so, who do social science one um, who get approved through that they end up um, uh, uh, being able to go through with their their laptops, uh, you know. But and but 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 what's put into that environment right now is not the, you know, the the personally identifiable stuff or individual level data. It's the it's the URL level data. Um, so we have Paula here. Paula is going to be an incoming one L in Michigan. Uh, and, uh, but she has a couple of really great questions. Uh, well, one question in particular, but go ahead, Paula. Nice to see yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my first question is, is on the point of the data, like I never thought of Facebook, like sifting through their data and looking at really what's happening. It just seems to me like the mass amount that's going on there besides, you know, the information that's being used to sell like products, like I think of daily products. I don't think of them as like accounting for every data point that comes through the website just because they don't care and because of the mass amounts that's coming in every day. That'd be my first question. Um, my second question, if I can explain it well, is I wonder whether you really think 
the point made by the researchers or you know the Biden administration on whether or not it's killing people if for academic sake and you know I'm a student I think that academia is important if at a moment in time when we have a crisis if that's really something that people should be caring about like I think of if I could care less if you know a 40 year old woman or an 18 year old woman is getting misinformation on coronavirus I want it all off of the page and I think whether I wonder what your thoughts are and whether just using blunt force instruments that are efficient, which is just getting rid of all of it versus letting academics come in with a precise, you know, method of determining whether or not, you know, this person's getting it or another is really the point of concern at this moment in time. So that's that's a great question. Let me start with the second one, which is. So, so take the, the, the question, are old people, as has been suggested, the primary problem when it comes to disinformation, both in terms of receiving it and in producing it? Now, if age is correlated with the propensity both to produce and receive disinformation, that really, that is policy significant, right? So um, if it turns out that young people, uh, this happens not to be true, but assume it was, that young people are kind of like cynics when they come to the internet anyway, they've grown up in the internet age, they're kind of skeptical of what they see online, right? Then all, you know, maybe, you know, having digital literacy uh, classes in high school is not gonna maybe solve this problem that you gotta target the nursing homes, right? You know, and so a, a lot of what, and, and especially figuring out like um, how correlated the uh, COVID beliefs are and and COVID communication, you know, say say vaccine hesitancy, all that kind of stuff is with race, gender, uh, age is really important for government policies that would say increase vaccination, right? And we have certain kinds of like um, intuitions about this, but I'll, I'll tell you where like where I think things are right now from the outside research that has been done which is a lot of the vaccine denial kind of community. It's not as if people are kind of surfing on Facebook and they're right. they're just sort of reading stuff. And then it's like, oh my God, here's someone who says vaccines are causing autism. And then it's like, oh, then I become a believer in that, right? A lot of what's happening on Facebook is these organized communities that people opt into because they already are kind of vaccine skeptics, right? And that they, and, and, and some of this happens with YouTube too. It's not, you know, the, the kind of typical trope with YouTube is that uh, people come to YouTube and they start out with, you know, their vegetarianism and they end up with veganism, right? When, because of the recommendation engine, or they start out with, you know, viewing Republicans and they end up with the alt-right because the re a lot of the research right now is suggesting that people come to these platforms looking for the stuff that they end up finding, right? And that's really important to get that, that right because if the algorithm is to blame, then there's one set of policy interventions that we got to go after. And if it's people are seeking out stuff that they actually want to see, that's going to be really, that, that, I mean, that cuts pretty close to the core of, of some of the freedom of speech and association. But we still maybe, as you said, use a blunt force instrument, you kick them off the platform, right? But, it's, it, but, but part of the problem is if private groups are the problem, that's a much more difficult uh, uh, thing to get at. Can I ask a point, Kate, on that? if that's okay yeah, of course. Of course. one thing so i from a family of immigrants i've noticed that's so massive that i don't think people talk about is whatsapp mm -hmm. and the amount of information and just really sendable things that i like i will hear one family member say and they've texted the photo to like hundreds of people 
And I'll heal another family member like two weeks, say the same thing. But that's an encrypted, non, you know, yes. social media thing. But and I think is, that is from yeah. Facebook and that does so in important. a way. But, but realize it's why that that is so important. So first of all, that is a key insight. And I think yeah. that not enough researchers under, look at WhatsApp because American researchers, right? We don't- It's very a, foreign. Yeah. Use but, but, it's but it's massively used in, Brazil, in other countries. In India, yes. The, all of it is WhatsApp. That's the problem. But, and so, so let's so suppose you're right, which is that WhatsApp poses the same problems as Facebook, right? On the same scale, whether it's disinformation, polarization, hate speech. Pick your pick your problem. WhatsApp does not have an algorithm. It also does not have ads. All right. And so, if you think the way to get at this problem, right, whether it's disinfo or, or the other ones that we were suggesting before, is to target those other problems, which frankly. You have an entire New York Times bestseller right now, which is saying that Facebook was unable to deal with um, uh, you know, hate speech and disinformation on its platform because it prioritized growth and money over dealing with those problems, right? And so um, if, however, WhatsApp, which basically doesn't make much money, right, but it, or at least you know, nothing comparable to Facebook, it, it has no ad platform still has those problems right then it's then you're not gonna you're not gonna solve it by i love that point nate oh my god do i love that point this is like this is like people i'm like no this is just it's too easy to keep blaming ads and money it just doesn't it's not it doesn't make sense like no but but look we shouldn't it's not that it's not it's just like it's not this is like ads and money are a big like Facebook should be taxed much more heavily than it than it is. Facebook, you know, ads should be much more heavily regulated than they are um, uh, on the internet, right? The privacy issues are are real and they should be the source of regulation. Having said that, right, there are other problems like disinformation and hate speech and the like for which those economic features are not the critical component, right? And so you can, you know, you you, you can have problems with each one of the kind of aspects of of, of the platforms, and frankly. You know, the, the, the ad, I mean, these are advertising platforms, right? That is what Facebook and Google are. They are advertising prob, uh, platforms with a social media company attached to it and a search engine attached to it, right? And so the, the, the um, and they make, a, you know, they've got 80% of the ads on the internet as a whole. You can go after that problem, right? By heavily regulating ads, preventing them from gathering user data, right? And because those, those are problems. It also is what is is part of the antitrust problem, right? Because they are basically, I mean, everybody tries to figure out well, what kind of monopoly are, are they? The monopoly is on online advertising, right? And yeah. so get, trying to figure out a way that, that whether it's local publications or other advertisers can share in that wealth is a problem. But again, that's one set of problems. We shouldn't assume that all the problems that we see on social media can be filtered through that lens. But, will... um, but she had oh, you, go you ahead. Had one, the first question. question. I want to make sure I answer answered that one again. I, I lost track. Well, I guess to that point, and I think you mentioned it a little bit when they they focused on, you know, more, um, you know, making money or profit. I mean, are they even aware of the amount of data or the influx yeah, yeah. of they, this? They are, That's, they are. I mean, yeah. can they, could do you, okay, because to me, as someone who thinks about, I don't know how many users, it's in the billions, mid billions somewhere, it's a lot. I can't fathom how they sift through it, although I'm not like a tech geek or no, not. But, but again, it depends. Look, there, there's there is an insane amount of resources at, at both of these big companies that's dedicated to optimizing advertising, right? Um, but there's also a lot, I mean, they do research on all of these harm problems, you know, trying to figure out um, 
what they can do to tweak, you know, the algorithm in order to, you know, well, both, you know, dealing with healthy engagement, but also mm -hmm. um, in ways that will, um, you know, prioritize some kinds of information over others. And one thing that I, I, you know, I've written a little bit about is the Facebook um, Voting Information Center, which was like when they were trying to push uh, information like about polling places and about voter registration, right? And so they need to figure out whether that works, right? And they do all kinds of A-B testing on everything. But, you know, Facebook says that it, I can't remember the number that it registered. It says it registered 4 million voters through its platform and, and recruited 100,000 poll workers, right? That, you know, if that's true, that's really important, right? Um, and, and, and it's only through, you know, them studying it and outsiders studying it that, it, that we will figure this out. I will add like three quick caveats. I'm gonna let you go, Paula. Um, I will add three quick caveats. Sorry, I don't know what just happened. I was like, well, I was like sitting here, and then I was like, oh, I can only say maybe it'll like glitch back. Maybe something's happening, and then I was like, sorry, I had to reset something. But anyway, um, what I was gonna just say was that like one to the the quickly to the point about um, WhatsApp. This was this specific thing about being able to forward some type of meme to a lot of people came up uh, most kind of prominently in the aftermath of uh, the genocide in Myanmar that like basically they made a number of what I would call code or architectural changes to uh, WhatsApp that prevent you from uh, prevent in some areas being able to forward to more than five people at a time a message specifically for this reason to slow mm -hmm. down kind of this yeah. the thread so that was like something that they specifically uh, Facebook I thought was a pretty good so like pretty good kind of solution to um, uh, architectural solution to this problem without having to get into like the substance of what's being forwarded or whatever else and all of the all of the speech problems. The other thing that I think that I was just going to briefly mention was that to your point about like kind of the fact that they don't look at all of this data and they have no idea. I think that there is something to the that wasn't my point. That was Paula's point. But oh, yeah. no, no. I know I was speaking to I was speaking to Paula. Oh, like, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to Paula's point. Is that like, is that I think that uh, there was a period in time early on in which the company did not do a ton of work, look not on data, but on like looking at data and speech harms and tracking, like tracking the, the content moderation side of data. They were tracking the ad side of data, the commercial side of data, but they were not tracking like the harms. They were not tracking kind of the fake news. They weren't doing all that. That is relatively recent. I would mm -hmm. say since Cambridge Analytica in 2018 has been the really big push, really kind of, I would say since Napalm Girl in 2016. So like those two moments were like kind of like the main things that has driven the shift in how the company prioritizes that type of analysis. But it's, it's um, a lot of it is still based on flagging and not based on just like organic data that's flowing through the system, but based on how individuals are reporting data and then looking at that to kind of extrapolate and do machine learning on and create kind of solutions for. So, so I, this also, I think, goes back to Genevieve's point, which is like, what kind of information do researchers want and need? So there's a set of questions as to what Facebook is doing as a company, right? And that has to do with takedowns. And, you know, they provide transparency reports and everything, but you want to know, you know, there's a big question, obviously policy relevant, as to whether Facebook is biased against conservative voices, right? That is a testable hypothesis that mm. you can look at if you have better access to the universe of data and then the, the takedown data and the like. Um, 
so so that's one set of questions but then there's the, the set of questions which is about well what the hell is happening on the facebook in the facebook environment right because a lot of life is happening there right and so if you want to figure out like who believes what or who is receiving signals from which groups or you know what kind of people are getting uh, information from what sources you know is facebook really killing off local you know publications right how much readership you know what types of um uh you know what, what what types of publications succeed in that environment all that kind of stuff right that's that's a whole separate set of questions and also important questions that i think and i think researchers have to have access to data with related to both of those now there are certain things you are absolutely right look facebook is and and, and google are very different companies today than they were before 2016. all the trust and safety stuff all this you know facebook basically has a national security apparatus that rivals many governments at this point, right? Um, because they've had to build it up in the wake of uh, 2016. And they've done, you know, an incredible amount of, um, you know, work uh, taking down and, and others uh, uh, over the last four years. Um, and so, and a lot of this is based on the research, you know, that, that, that was done internally about what was necessary. And, you know, this, this is something that is, that it does come out of the New York Times, the um, Cecilia Kang and, um, um, Shira Frankel book, right, which is that, uh, you know, that, that, that in the wake of the disclosures in 2016, um, many, many of whom did not want those disclosed, many in the firm did not want those disclosures to see the light of day, right, but that then, you know, they built these huge security teams after that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, Mike Larky, so nice to see you. Uh, go ahead with your great question. Sure. So uh, you sort of touched on earlier um, some of this with uh, the review boards, but can you just lay out, uh, is there a uniform code of ethics for data researchers um, or is it by like institution and do they have different rights or different responsibilities to uh, say the individuals that produce the data versus like the third party uh, data holders like Facebook, um, right? Yeah. How, how do yeah. those relationships change between like who first creates the data, who takes hold of it next? Right. Maybe like it transfers from Facebook to another company. Like how do, how do those responsibilities change? So, all right. So there's, there are legal barriers here, then there are ethical ones. So let, let's just start with the minimal, which is IRB approval, right? So you have, um, certain rules, regardless of what you're talking about, online data or other kinds of data and how you handle data and, and, and uh, treatment of human subjects and the like. That is, you know, that is really minimalist. Uh, we should not overstate how good IRBs are in dealing with some of this private, these privacy issues. Then you do have other codes of ethics that have been developed by, by schools of researchers to deal with this. Um, and, uh, you know, th th that is an emerging issue. One thing by the way, and going back to the WhatsApp conversation and something that Josh Tucker and I mentioned in our book is that we really don't have a good set of ethical norms for how you deal with these these private encrypted environments. Right. So that in many ways, we're kind of going back to the time when anthropologists would go into, you know, uh, communities and embed themselves there and then write about it later on. It's kind of the same thing um, where they go into these WhatsApp groups. And, you know, sometimes they announce themselves, like, look, I'm lurking here, I'm observing you, and I'm going to write about it, you know, but then the WhatsApp groups will change over the next year. How often do they have to announce themselves? And and lots of private stuff gets said in those. And, and so we really do need to develop new ethical rules for that kind of um, research. But 
Would you yes, almost say are. that it's dictated by norms? Well, but there's, well, yes. <laughs> but there are codes of it. I mean, there's there's stuff you're supposed to, I mean, I you know, there, there, there are okay. rules and, and there are associations and groups of researchers that have been developing this. If I had it off the top of my head, I'd uh, put the link out there. Sorry. <laughs> sure, there's no, there's always no. <laughs> um, listen, I don't know that as someone, I'm not the, well, actually I did occasionally Skype in or zoom in from a cheers bar, but you zoomed in from a cheers bar. So I don't know that I would be like disparaging Norm right now. So <laughs> just <laughs> did not even occur to me. Yeah. that. <laughs> okay. We have our last question from Ave. And as usual, it is very thoughtful. Abe, it's great to see you outside your van down by the river in, fr in Canada. How are hey you? guys. Uh, uh, so my question is, uh, big tech is not responsible for um, the old democracy problem. Neither it is for, for the old COVID misinformation problem. You think that we could address big tech issues more efficiently if we stopped seeing technology as the cause of all of the ails of the heart, the hurt? And like, yeah. Well, That's so yeah, I think that th this is the way I would portray. It. I think because I think you're right, which is that you know social media um, reflects and amplifies problems that pre-exist in society. So if you have 40% of the population that believes, you know, in some kind of, you know, that the election was stolen, well, you're going to see a large section of the Facebook user population engaging in discussions on that, for example, right? And so now there are affordances of these platforms that make the problems worse, right? And this is where, you know, their responsibility comes in. Advertising is one of them, right? So that they got to be careful with what they sell, you know, what, what they, you know, influence that they sell. Um, you know some of the algorithms are another right then they've been working a lot on this right I and mean, we all know that, that that you know there's been tweaks there are over a thousand tweaks to the search algorithm at google every year um and and youtube you know has done done quite a bit on that as well but um but that's that's the question right which is look it's not like populism around the world um was necessarily caused by the internet or caused by these platforms but these are media types of media that do um, facilitate populism, right? Because they are allow they allow people to go around elites for better or worse, and you know that you just have to grapple with it. That this is a, the most kind of egalitarian and democratized form of communication, and and that the platforms do enable some kind of really bad stuff that didn't exact exist in the legacy uh, media environment. Right now, how you deal with that is a million dollar question. You know, we're not going to be able to eliminate bad, you know, uh, action from uh, online communities, but it's a constant struggle. Can I can I make to, to end on a kind of a silly but also slightly serious note? Have you seen the musical Newsies? <laughs> I didn't. And I'm actually a big musical fan. I know some of the music, but I never saw Newsies. So you should I know what it's it. about them. OK, so. Genevieve, please, please, please have watched this mu it, musical. It's, it's fantastic. It's okay. So Christian Bale's in it and he's young and he's like, whatever. That's beside the point. The real, so like what's interesting about this musical, um, and although it is a musical, but I was watching it and the way that it cat, like it creates kind of like, it create the, the, the protagonist is this group of newsies that is like, and they are, I would say, 
um, mo- like in the modern day, they're influencers. They go out and they pump up the headlines that they're given. They sell, they like create these fantastical versions of whatever the headline actually is. And they're working against the man, which in this like scenario is Hearst and Pulitzer. So like journalism is the enemy in like in Newsies, <laughs> um, which is also super interesting. And there is like this kind of like push to to kind of create this of a, like you know it, it was at the it, it takes place at the kind of the crux of like you provide the war you provide the photos I'll provide the war type of moment of yellow journalism. But, like, I was kind of thinking, I was watching it the other day just because I wanted something light and fun to put on. And I was like, this is so interesting. Maybe everything old, it like, everything old is new again. Like, it was just like I'd never watched it. But, like, the one-to-one was, like, almost perfect. Like, it was just, like, as the story progresses, I was like, oh, these are just, like, people, influencers who are pumping up and creating fake news out of headlines. Like, but also the media is, like, not helping by creating the pretty bad headlines to begin with and like manufacturing a little bit of it to begin with. And I don't, it was just so interesting well, to kind so of think about now, that way. And this is a good place to conclude. Whenever I give my talk on the internet and democracy, I have three caveats at the beginning. The first is what you think is new is actually old, right? Cause every <laughs> time I say yes, yeah, the internet, the internet may be doing something, but same arguments were made with radio television and the printing press, right? It's like, yes, I grant that. The second is what I think is bad is actually good. Yes, it's true that it leads to disinformation, you know, a polarization and the like, but it also breaks up the elite, you know, uh, mediators that stood in the way of marginalized voices from getting uh, their, their message out. And the third is what I think is original is something you've published on already, right? Which is, you know, what, what happens in academic audiences anytime I, you know, present this stuff. And so I got to make sure that I, that I cite clonic among many others uh, uh, in, in my research. Kate, you're muted. I just recently at dinner was like, have you heard of this person? You're like, yes, Kate, they've been around for like 30, 40 years. And I'm like, ha, like anyway. So it like, I mean, this is like, but as long as, I don't know. Anyways, I agree. Uh, well, I, I, let me correct one thing I said because the journalist has texted me who was watching this, that I said that one of the arguments that Facebook is making about um, the NYU Observatory is that uh, the friends of the the people who are in the ad uh, uh, who opted in, their data was being revealed. Um, what apparently is it's users that didn't consent, which might include um, advertisers. Um, but I've heard different things from folks there as to who whose privacy might be at risk. And this again is something that we we need answers on, right? So, with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nate. This was, as always, fun and informative. Uh, we will be back 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. We don't know with who. Really, we have no idea. True. The guest or the hosts. We have no idea. Um, but uh, thank you. And Genevieve, we can't have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we have the Newsies and Young Christian. thank you so much for like not leaving me hanging no that is that was one of my favorite favorite yeah it's catchy so catchy